Well, it's time for your memory verse test. Those of you who have been with us during this Are You Growing series um, are used to this. Every time we, uh, we go through the series, we'll go through, uh, I'm about to say 2 Corinthians, Colossians 2, uh, 6 and 7 here. Let's go ahead and do this together on the screen with the magical hand. Of, yeah, here we go. Colossians 2, 6 and 7, let's do this. Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. One more time. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Well done. You can read nicely. Maybe the next couple of weeks we'll do that without their up, that up there and see how that goes. I'm lucky I have it up here and I can cheat. And I guess you can too because it's on your sheets there. So I'm not sure we'll be, we'll be doing it straight uh, next time. As most of you know, based on passages like that, our assumption during this series is that if you are a believer in Christ, you're growing. The assumption that Scripture has about what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus is that you will be growing, that your faith is going somewhere. The fancy theological term we've been throwing around here and there is sanctification. It's what makes you more and more like Christ so that we will be prepared for heaven someday. You see, Scripture does not acknowledge Anything like believers who are not increasingly being made into the image of Christ. It talks about us as if we were plants. In fact, Scripture uses that image, that metaphor of plants to describe us. In Genesis, the second chapter, in verse 15, it says that God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. You see, humanity's first vocation was taking care of the land and tending to the growth of God's creation, of which Adam and Eve were a part. So fundamentally, written even in the fabric of our own creation as people, is the idea that we were first planted here on this earth to grow. In Psalm 80, it says that God brought a vine out of Egypt. It uses that growth metaphor to talk about a vine. All over the New Testament, it uses words Jesus himself spoke about the kingdom of God by talking about the growth of a seed. We're also called things in scripture like grass, trees, plants, shoots, leaves, branches, wheat. We're called sowers. We're called farmers. It just keeps going and going. Scripture assumes that when we follow Jesus, we are continually being made into the image of of Christ. That's why for us, we talked about the three C's. The first is what we're doing here. It's celebrating God and His work in our lives. The third one is to communicate the gospel. It's when we, in our lives, communicate the gospel by what we say and by what we do in service, in evangelism, in our relationships with the community. And smack dab in the middle is the second C, which is to cultivate purposely chosen as a plant-like kind of cultural word, 
cultivating growth in our lives. So that's what's behind this whole series here. Let's go ahead and ask God to speak to us through his word today. Father, we sang those words, speak, O Lord. We know, Father, that you have called us to continually be made into your image. That with each day, we would see our lives as part of the bigger whole of your plan of creation, bringing you glory at the end of all time. And so we want to be a part of that, Lord. And we ask that your spirit would move us. That in our hearts today, in those places where we need to be grieved about our sin, that we would do that appropriately and meaningfully. And that for those places, for, for those places in our lives where, Father, we need to feel victory that comes from you at the cross because of our sin. We ask that you would speak that to us as well. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, there was a pig a few years ago. How's that for a good transition in a sermon? <laughs> There's a good transition here today. Uh, there was a pig that traveled on a U.S. Airways jet uh, about 10 years ago. It was a uh, six-hour U.S. Airways flight from Philadelphia to Seattle. And this pig wasn't in a cage with the baggage underneath, and he didn't ride coach. In fact, two passengers had convinced the airline representative that the pig needed to fly with them in first class as a therapeutic companion pet. Apparently, the airline person was swayed by this seeing-eye pig kind of argument because the pig was permitted to sit with them near the front of the plane in first class. He was seated in three seats near his two companions there, and uh, there were a number of folks on that flight that described the pig with words like enormous, brown, angry, and honking. <laughs> so as you can imagine, when this plane starts to, to, to take off, this, this pig doesn't exactly stay in a, in a good frame of mind. The pig sort of spazzed out as the, as the uh, plane took off, as you can imagine, big surprise. Somehow, I don't think the pig was following the FAA regulations to stay in your seat and keep your seatbelt on. So after takeoff, the pig goes all the way up and down the aisle of this plane. One of the flight attendants said it became restless after takeoff and sauntered through the entire cabin. One passenger said he kept rubbing his nose on people's legs, trying to get them to give him food and to pet him. And upon landing, of course, things only got worse. The article reports this about the incident. The pig panicked, running up and down through economy class, squealing the entire time. As you can imagine, there were many passengers also squealing, standing up on their seats to avoid the pig. And it took four attendants to escort this pig out of the plane. And upon reaching the terminal, the pig escaped again and ran all the way through the airport. They finally recaptured him. And the spokesman for U.S. Airways said this, very calmly, but firmly, we can confirm that the pig traveled, and we can confirm that it will never happen again. <laughs> Something tells me that uh, those, those flight attendants and the, that, that pilot 
regret the decision to allow a pig to fly in the airplane. You know, at one time or another, all of us regret decisions we've made. And in comparison to our lives and the things that we regret, letting a pig loose in an airplane is relatively small potatoes to the things that we regret in our lives. We regret many things in our lives, both that we have done and that we have left undone. The misspoken word that hurts. The fit of rage that damages. The passion of a moment's heat that happened in the wrong context and at the wrong time. What about, for example, on the other side of things, that encouraging word that we should have spoken that we didn't. That chance to help we turned down when we knew we could have helped. That, that loving touch that we wished we had given, but we didn't. All those times we should have said something to a friend or a loved one and used words like, I love you, when we didn't. We all have these kinds of things in our lives that we regret. There's no shortage of things that we regret doing or not doing in life. In fact, for some people, that kind of regret can begin to consume their identities, their lives. And it, in turn, can hinder our growth in godliness. It can be a real barrier to becoming who God created you to be. It can be a barrier to the person he planted you in this garden to become. You see, there's a big difference between regret that stays regret and regret that becomes repentance. That's the main distinction we're going to make today in this passage we're looking at. There's a big difference between regret that stays at regret and regret that turns us to repentance and to doing business with God and with each other. Because repent, repentance is that thing that moves us to a right relationship with God and with other people. And regret that becomes repentance is what we're calling today godly grief. The big idea today that we're talking about that's on that sheet of paper is that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to, as we read there, salvation without regret. So the question for us is, how do we become people who express godly grief that leads to that repentance and to that growth in our lives? How do we continue to become who God made us to be so that regret becomes something positive for us and we don't get stuck in that place where grief and sorrow and regret define us. Let's dive into 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter here. Let's learn a little bit about this concept of godly grief. The irony going on here is that Paul is happy about their sorrow. We just read those verses there, and we'll get to these here again. But Paul is joyful at the sorrow of the people. You see, 2 Corinthians here is a letter from Paul to the church at Corinth. And it's a letter of response to a very complicated history between Paul and that particular church. 
You see, Paul was traveling around. He was organizing a collection to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Now, of course, in, in, in all of Paul's travels, his primary function is to preach the gospel. But this time, he is also taking up a collection to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem. So Paul is collecting from these Gentile churches outside Jerusalem in order to help them. The history is basically something like this. Paul is frustrated with them. He's frustrated with the Corinthian Christians. Because unlike the churches in Macedonia where he had just been, who were very, very poor in comparison to Corinth, they gave very generously the first time Paul asked. Unlike the Macedonian churches who were of little means yet gave generously, the Corinthian church who had great means had been slow to respond. And on top of that, even though he planted that very church in Corinth that we're reading about, they have now been attracted to some new teachers who Paul sarcastically called super apostles. Because they were teaching a false gospel. The Corinthians had been swayed by this trendy and new and, and shiny apostles, this sort of new 2.0 model of apostle. And Paul has to explain to them that his plain and bold preaching of the gospel was all that the Corinthians needed. So that's a little bit about the history behind it here. So Paul had written them what he called a letter of tears. Turn to 2 Corinthians 2 for just a second here. 2 verse 4. And we'll look at that letter of tears here that he refers to. He'd written them this letter of tears, as he says, because he was rebuking them for their lack of generosity and faith. Their lack of faith. So he says this in uh, chapter 2, verse 4. He says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. That's why we call it letter of tears. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. It is this letter that he's referring to in this passage in chapter 8. I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 8, where we pick up. This story. Turn back to uh, that chapter 7 there, verse 8, and we'll pick up this story. So he refers back to this letter. Verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. The key word in this whole passage is the word grief. In some translations, it's, it's, it's called sorrow. It's used seven different times here in just these four verses. For verse 8, there's one verse that says, I know that I distressed you greatly. So Paul acknowledges up front that this letter of tears he wrote had, had in some sense hurt them. But in verse 9 he says, As it is, now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Apparently the Corinthians realized upon Paul's letter of tears that they had been stingy and led astray by these super apostles. And they were grieved about their previous behavior. His letter of tears had worked. But it didn't work because Paul shot straight with them. It worked because their grief was a godly grief. 
It was a grief that took seriously the weight of their sin and their rejection of Paul's gospel. Verse 10 says this. This is where Paul describes the distinction between godly grief, like we're talking about today, and worldly grief. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul is suggesting here that there are two ways that we can react to our sorrow. We can react in one of two ways to the sorrow and the grief that we experience in life. We can let it produce a change of heart and make us more sensitive to God's presence in our lives. Or we can respond with resentment and self-pity. The difference here is what we do with our grief. Grief happens. You don't need me to tell you that. The difference for us as believers is what we do with that grief. In the case of godly grief, we can let it soften our hearts and humble us and lead us to turn toward the Lord. With worldly grief, sorrow is turned inward and it stays there and it hardens us to the Lord. What makes our grief worldly or godly is what we do with it. You see, godly grief, it produces repentance. A repentance that leads to, as it says, salvation without regret. That's exactly the kind of response that we see in Psalm, the 51st chapter here. Turn to that for just a second here. We're going to finish up here in Psalm, the 51st chapter. This is a kind of godly grief response that we're talking about. David exemplifies this for us here. He has just been confronted by Nathan the prophet about his adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan confronted him and said, you are the man. You're the one who did this. And so David in Psalm 51, he cries out these words. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Skip to verse 10 there. This is that song we sang earlier. David is crying out because he realizes that, of course, he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and the people of Israel, but primarily, godly grief realizes that it's a sin against the Lord and his character and his nature and his goodness. And so David cries out in godly grief to repentance. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. There's a guy named Noble Das. Noble Das dropped the ball. 
once. <laughs> one ball, one pass, one mistake. In 1941, he let one fall through his grip. And that one has haunted him ever since. He says, it cost my team a national championship. The University of Texas football team was ranked number one in the nation. And they were hoping for an undefeated season and a birth in the Rose Bowl. And they played their conference rival, Baylor. They had a 7-0 lead in the third quarter. And the Texas Longhorn quarterback launched a deep pass to a wide-open Noble Doss. He says, the only thing I had between me and the goal was 20 yards of grass. The throw was on target. The Longhorn fans rose to their feet. The sure-handed Noble Doss spotted the ball, reached out, and it slipped through. Baylor rallied and tied the score with just seconds left to play. Texas lost their top ranking and then their chance at the Rose Bowl. He says, I think about that play every single day. Not that he lacks other memories. The guy was happily married for more than six decades. He was a father, a grandfather. He served in the Navy during World War II. He appeared in the cover of Life magazine with his teammates. He intercepted 17 passes in his collegiate career, a university record. He won two NFL titles with the Eagles. The Texas High School Hall of Fame and the Longhorn Hall of Fame include his name. But most fans don't remember all of those catches and interceptions and the passes he caught. And Doss remembers the one that he missed. One time, many, many, many years later, he met the new Longhorn head coach, and he told him about that one time when he missed it. It had been 50 years since Noble Doss dropped that pass. But when he talked to that coach, he wept like a baby because he messed up one time and it began to define his life ever since. Friends, the gospel says that we have dropped the ball many, many times. And regret for us can easily stay in that place of regret. But we cannot, as believers, as growing Christians, let that define us. We cannot let that harden our hearts. We must continue, as growing believers, to keep the cross forefront in our minds. Keep the cross forefront and not dropped passes. we got plenty of dropped balls in our lives but, Father, we, but, but we also have a cross that our Father gives us to help us experience a godly grief that makes us turn to Him. So that we can have a grief that produces repentance in our relationships with God and with one another. Friends, that's the joy of the Gospel. And it's what we want to celebrate here in our lives. If you are needing a church home and you've been an immersed believer in Christ, 
we want to offer this as an opportunity for you to become a part of what we're doing as people whose regret will not define us, but who turn to the Lord in repentance. Or if you want to name Jesus Christ publicly as your Lord and Savior and declare Him in baptism, then we ask that as we come forward, that you would come forward as we stand to sing.